Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. This episode will be focused on Russian imperialism, its genealogy and its attitude towards Ukraine, other neighbors and the wider world. My name is Vladimir Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of ukraineworld.org. And my guest is Vera Toltz, professor of Russian studies at the University of Manchester and the author of numerous studies about Russia, Russian history and Russian media discourse. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest and biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. Professor Vera Toltz, uh, thank you so much for joining this podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak about this topic, which I think uh, is very important, sort of the role of Russian imperialism in the current war uh, against Ukraine. And I think it is the topic which hasn't received as much publicity as I would have expected uh even in kind of western debates uh yeah so uh, let's let's focus on this let's focus on this and uh you studied a lot the the issues of russian imperialism russian colonialism what should we know about russian imperialism to understand it better what the global audience both in the global north and global south has to know about it and now let's start uh, with uh a couple of clar- clarifications, and then I'll make specific points about uh, uh, Russia, focusing just on a uh, few details uh, in relation to this actually vast topic. So how should we understand imperialism? Uh, at the very basic level, I would say it's when one people rule over the other through domination, Um, And uh, clarification is uh, that uh, throughout history, uh, most polities uh, actually were imperial polities. Uh, They were empires. Uh, The idea of a nation and a nation state is a new one. Uh, It goes back uh, to the French Revolution, the late 18th century, and it takes shape throughout the 19th century and the 20th uh, century. Now, in relation to uh, this vast issue of uh, Russian imperialism, I'll try to comment on uh, a couple of aspects. Uh, One, uh, whether there is anything specific about Russian imperialism, and then which aspects of Russian imperialism are of direct relevance to understanding Russia's current war against Ukraine. So uh, Russian imperial state, uh, let's uh, say going back to Peter the Great or maybe even the conquest of uh, Kazan, the remnant of uh, the Mongol Empire in the late 16th century, uh, was land-based contiguous empire with authoritarian system of rule. The ideas of nationalism start to challenge uh, all empires, European empires in the 19th century, and of course land-based empires uh, where uh, the metropole and uh, imperial or colonial peripheries were part of one state 
in particular. And in the second half of the 19th century, we have roughly kind of two approaches, put it, to put it very crudely. One uh, uh, of the Habsburg Empire, later Austro-Hungarian Empire, in terms of the response to uh, the demands of rising um, non-imperial or anti-imperial nationalist movements and uh, Russian imperial approach. So the Habsburg approach was uh, to kind of neutralize uh, and accommodate the demands of uh, non-German speaking minorities by uh, giving them a greater autonomy and greater rights. And the Russian approach uh, was very different. So in the last part of the 19th century, uh, we see actually more restrictions and even greater removal of uh, kind of elements of autonomy uh, uh, of non-Russians than before. And... uh, kind of more consistent, much more consistent Russification policy. And in this context, I think it's very important to understand that uh, uh, the place of uh, Ukraine uh, is different uh, in the Russian imperial imagination from more or less any other um, nationality of, of the empire. Uh, and of course, in the context when uh, nationalism uh, or non-imperial uh, nationalism starts to challenge uh, empires, and particularly land-based empires, and when the idea of the nation-state emerges as, um, or the nation-state emerges as uh, a very uh, efficient, a new efficient form of political organization, uh, sort of empires start looking into how to kind of accommodate this uh, um, idea of a nation state. And without uh, other Islamic people of the empire, Russian empire, great Russians, Velikarosi, those who now we we can call ethnic Russians, they constitute an absolute minority. Uh, And that's why the idea of Ukrainians as a separate nation uh, starts to be seen as such a threat. Uh, And so we have uh, particularly draconian uh, uh, decrees already from uh, the 1860s or even earlier against Ukrainian language, uh, for example. So we can argue that the whole notion of modern a uh, Russian nation emerges or crystallized, started to crystallize, I would say, sometimes in the 1880s in particular, in response to uh, the idea of Ukrainian nation. It's very interesting. It means that, uh, it means that Russians, the, the very idea of Russian nationality or ethnicity cannot be understood without the development of the Ukrainian nation. And also Russians fear that without Ukrainians and without incorporating the Ukrainians into the and Belarusians into the concept of great Russians, they will cease to be a, an imperial uh, an imperial center. Is that what you mean? That's what I mean. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because, of course, we have a, a narrative uh, developed currently by uh, 
Putin's government and uh, kind of public intellectuals who uh, serve the Kremlin uh, of a kind of thousand-year-old uh, Russian nation and uh, idea of a Ukrainian nation as a kind of artificial construct. But of course, every idea or any idea of any nation is a construct. Uh, and uh, yes, I think it's much more plausible kind of academically, uh, scientifically an argument that can be articulated that the idea of the Russian nation in modern terms uh, is a reactive one and particularly reactive uh, to the challenge of Ukrainian nationalism. I, w- I would agree with you because I'm thinking of the early 19th century when, for example, all these folkloristic movements, which were also coming from Europe, let's not forget, mm-hmm. from, mm-hmm. from the Germany, mm-hmm. from Poland, mm-hmm. and they were entering the Russian Empire and primarily entering through Ukrainian lands and through this ethnographic movement in Ukrainian lands, collecting songs, etc. So this idea of a nation of, of people were, was emerging rather as opposed to the idea of the empire. So idea of, of a nation, uh, mm-hmm. grassroots mm-hmm. development, etc. Mm-hmm. And then Russians try to incorporate this idea of the nation into the empire mm-hmm. and say, okay, we have the Russian empire, which is based upon mm-hmm. this idea of the Russian nation. Yeah. And uh, actually, even I- ironically, the idea of this uh, Russian nation, big Russian nation, which involves... Uh, you, uh, today's Ukrainians and Belarusians and Russians, uh, it's also, well, I could say, originated from Kiev. Uh, and that's the, the time of the sort of early 18th century, in the late uh, 17th century, where, again, all these kind of Western ideas or pro-national national, national ideas come uh, via Poland and Kiev, uh, which has the Bahila, Bahila Academy, uh, the university basically of European type, uh, which does not yet exist in Russia. Uh, and uh, if we look at uh, who were the kind of key ideologists uh, uh, of uh, Peter the Great, uh, they are all from Kiev, uh, because that is the uh, one of the key channels uh, through which European ideas come to uh, to Moscow and then St. Petersburg. It's very interesting because I, I guess you mean uh, people like Theofan Prokopovich or oh, Stefan oh, Vygotsky, exactly, exactly. Yes, yes. Yeah. And I'm as a as a as a lecturer at Kiev Mahila Academy. Of course, uh, we are very interested in this story as well. Mm-hmm. And for us, for Ukrainians, it's also a ambiguous story how Ukrainians helped uh, Russia uh, construct its idea of empire. Mm-hmm. thinking that it was a progressive for early 18th century and how this empire then uh, strikes back by Peter I and then Catherine II by dest- and destroying the Ukrainian yeah. the Ukrainian autonomy. Yeah. So it's also one of the paradoxes of history. But let yeah. me come back to your first point, to the Habsburg Empire. It's very interesting because we can actually read the establishment of the Soviet Union with those, uh, though all this Leninist idea of giving the... 
uh, uh, the nations of the Russian Empire a kind of quasi-statehood with their capitals, with their uh, borders, with their state quasi-state institutions, the so-called uh, socialist Soviet republics. Uh, maybe this was also an idea trying to accommodate the national and the, and the imperial. And then interestingly that Putin in, in current Russian propaganda denies the, the, the legitimacy of this mm. turn. Therefore, Putin is uh, making a war not only against, uh, against Ukraine or against Belarus, but also against Lenin and against Leninist of the idea of the Soviet Union. And basically, I think this is an idea that all this experiment, starting from the Habsburg Empire to accommodate the idea of empire and the idea of nation, uh, is a wrong idea. And we have to just uh, go away from it. Do you have this this feeling as well? Uh, yeah, of course. The, um, empires, uh, land-based empires uh, specifically, be it um, Austro-Hungarian or Russian Ottoman Empire as well, collapsed in the context of the First World War. Uh, and uh, it's true that the Bolshevik government, uh, Lenin specifically, had a... Uh, uh, very clear understanding of the importance of uh, national movements uh, that had been emerging uh, in Europe and challenging empires. So the Soviet Union, as envisaged by Lenin, uh, was an attempt to address uh, this issue of national challenge. Uh, And... uh, it seems to me that uh, that uh, attempt uh, allowed uh, a quasi-imperial structure because the uh, territory of the Soviet Union was almost congruent to the territory of the Russian Empire to perpetuate for uh, another 70-plus years. Uh, The idea that you can undo uh, the decades uh, of uh, this, uh, in a way, Soviet uh, uh, legacy and Soviet legacy of recognizing uh, Ukrainians as a separate uh, nation and go back to some ideal uh, pre-revolutionary past uh, is... uh, a fantasy, a complete fantasy, and I hope we will be able to kind of touch upon this topic. And this is a fantasy which can be, but uh, can only become a basis of policy in the regime, which is uh, a very centralized and personalized dictatorship, uh, with a dictator kind of becoming a hostage. Uh, of the specific manipulation narratives uh, which he and his propaganda machine articulates uh, over two decades for the purpose of legitimizing uh, their power. Uh, Also, what I think is very important for understanding the kind of the element of Soviet legacy that is very important for the understanding of current discourses and policies of Russia is the fact that uh, universal, truly universal mass education and mass literacy we see in the state, 
kind of ruled from St. Petersburg and then Moscow, in Stalin's period, in the 1930s. Uh, and uh, what is important is the kind of historical narrative which is articulated in that period and which is taught at schools with some modification, but basically taught throughout the, of the entire uh, Soviet period. And this is the narrative which reproduced uh, not just uh, the writings of Russian imperial historians, but which reproduced uh, the arguments and claims of the crudest uh, versions of Russian imperial history, which like more serious uh, historians, imperial historians of Russia, who of course still were very influenced by imperial legacy, but uh, like Luchevsky or Solovyov, but they mocked this uh, kind of populist, um, uh, crude narratives uh, of uh, Russia or the whole Russian empire as a basically Russian national state that were articulated at the turn of the 20th century. But uh, these kind of narratives become the basis of the teaching of history uh, from Stalin's period uh, onwards. Um, and it's very, very interesting how, how Putinism propaganda right now really tries to cancel uh, even the Soviet Union in this the, the Soviet approach to 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 the national question, but let me uh, let me come to this Ukrainian issue because when we analyze this Russia-Ukrainian struggle, and of course for our listeners, uh, my my constant message is that uh, we should go very deep in history to understand it, not only to 2014, but we should go to the 20th century, 19th century, 18th century, etc. This is a very long struggle. But can we describe Ukraine's struggle as a struggle against imperialism and colonialism? Is it is it that simple? Because you mentioned that Kyiv was the center of many ideas, which then formed uh, even Russian national identity. In in many ways, Russian developments were secondary compared to Ukrainian developments. So the the relations between Ukraine and Russia are not linear. Yeah, uh, uh, absolutely. And I uh, think that, the, of course, in the context of war uh, and actually in the context of kind of vigorous uh, post-Soviet nation building uh, in uh, the countries uh, of the former Soviet Union, there is a, a, an understandable impulse uh, to read uh, history uh, and use history selectively uh, from the point of view of the kind of, in a way, perceptions and demands uh, of today. Uh, but uh, yes, purely uh, imperial or particularly colonial kind of lens that the whole relationship between uh say, Moscow, St. Petersburg, and uh, the territories of today's Ukraine are uh, purely colonial. That uh, kind of won't, uh, of, of course, work, um, because even uh, at the turn of the 20th century, uh, there were uh, many uh, representatives of the 
Russian nationalist movement uh, in Kiev. There was a uh, at the turn of the 20th century the club of uh, so-called Russian nationalists, and the largest branch was in Kiev with people like Sikorsky, so people with Ukrainian or Polish names. Uh, uh, sort of fighting for the idea of this big Russian nation. And that is because basically until the First World War, uh, uh, and even more so after the Second World War, the uh, nation and empire were not necessarily seen as polar opposites uh, uh, as they are seen today. Uh, because the, the kind of division of uh, the world into empires uh, was seen initially as absolutely natural and unchallengingly natural, uh, and uh, then uh, as at least as natural as the division of the world into nations. Yeah, these are all kind of in a way uh, how we imagine collective identity is inevitably in all situations and a construct, a political, cultural, social construct. Uh, and where I think uh, another point which I think is important in understanding Russian uh, nationalism is that the current post-1991 uh, Russian Federation uh, is basically a fragment uh, of an empire. It's not a nation state, it's a fragment of an empire. It still has uh, Tatarstan, yeah, Bashkortostan, uh, the kind of historically the remnant of the Mongol Empire as part of the Russian Federation and the North Caucasus. And I think that uh, what is very interesting is the similarities and differences between uh, Moscow's relationship uh, and Putin's Moscow relationship to Chechnya and Ukraine. The relationship between uh, the North Caucasus and Russia are much more straightforwardly kind of colonial throughout history uh, than uh, with Kiev. Uh, but uh, the parallels between particularly the Second Chechen War fought by um, uh, uh, Putin's government and between 1999 and uh, 2009, uh, and the war that basically helped consolidating uh, Putin's power and the current war uh, in Ukraine, uh, is striking. Uh, the, the methods are very similar uh, in, in terms of uh, achieving victory at all costs by uh, uh, incredible levels of violence against the uh, civilian population. And also the narratives which are used to justify the aggression, which ultimately I don't think can be uh, described by, as anything but a colonial aggression. But there is one difference, I think. There is one difference with the Chechen war, is that it's very difficult to uh, persuade Chechens that they're ethnically Russians. 
but Russians are trying to persuade themselves and Ukrainians that Ukrainians are ethnically Russians. And why they are doing so, my hypothesis is that what makes the Russian Empire different from the from the other empires, European empires from the 19th century, etc., is the precisely this uh, attempt to merge the imperial idea and the national idea, to say that they in some way coincide, and that means that uh, they will try to build an empire which will which will have only one nation, only Russian nation, and then the Soviet nation, and if they fail to persuade Ukrainians that they are Russians, they understand that they will, of course, fail even more to persuade Chechens, Bashkirs, Tatars, Buryats, etc., who have absolutely different ethnic origins. And I think this is one of the uh, big tragedies, I mean, uh, ironical tragedies of this Russian ideology, that it, it is basically understanding that it is failing in Ukraine, and therefore it, it, it is seeing the looming collapse of the, of the very imperial idea of, of Russia. What do you think? Uh, I think that uh, the idea that uh, basically somehow Russian national homeland and empire are congruent, it's uh, one uh, and the same, uh, is very important uh, in uh, Russian political and cultural tradition. And uh, it's interesting that I uh, wrote a, a book now almost 20 years ago, uh, Russia Inventing the Nation, where I was making precisely this point, uh, that the importance of this uh, congress uh, between the idea of the nation and the idea of empire and there were various historians who criticized me and said look there are all these examples of uh, the separation um, of the Russian imperial attempt to kind of um, map out the Russian imperial core which is separate from the empire which we uh, see particularly from the 1880s, uh, which um, in a way uh, is true. But I uh, agree with you. I think that to some extent uh, my reading has now been (laughs) sort of vindicated um, uh, in a way. But uh, again, I would not say that uh, we should not exaggerate the uniqueness because the overlap between... Uh, the imperial identity and uh, the um, uh, national identity is very strong in the case of British and English nationalism. Um, and there is an excellent book on this uh, topic by Linda Colley uh, called Britons. Um, so, and we also see at the turn of the 20th century in French and British imperialism in particular, the uh, kind of attempt to impose a national vision onto imperial domains in France, particularly in relation to uh, Algeria. So there are parallels uh, in this overlap of uh, national and imperial discourses uh, of other European nations. What I think makes Russian policies distinct uh, is precisely the authoritarian nature of the system. And uh, I'll give you a kind of 
I think, good ex- example, which uh, shows you uh, the difference. And I, I think, to me, one of the things which this current war uh, of Russia against Ukraine emphasizes precisely the fundamental difference between how democratic governments act and how uh, particularly personalized uh, dictatorships uh, that we have in Russia now act. In the context of Brexit, the referendum uh, of uh, uh, the UK, around UK leaving the European Union, uh, representatives of the elites, uh, particularly connected with the Conservative Party, whose project, the Brexit, uh, was, uh, articulated uh, the narratives where uh, a kind of British and English identities were subsumed into imperial uh, identity. And the language which was used in relation to Northern Ireland, and particularly Ireland, which one can argue has been uh, um, had been historically treated as a colony uh, by um, Britain, uh, was uh, very imperial uh, and colonial in the kind of nineteenth century terms, uh, and some of the similarly kind of this rhetoric uh, which did not distinguish between uh, English and British nationalism uh, in relation to Scotland had also been used. Uh, And yet uh, these kind of narratives were criticized questioned, delegitimized in the liberal press. And because of uh, the nature of the British political system, despite the fact that there is a very strong sort of this imperial uh, British nationalism, which regards Scotland and Ireland as, as part of this imperial national and national vision. We cannot imagine uh, that if, let's say, Scotland uh, will hold another referendum and now vote for leaving the, uh, uh, the United Kingdom, if uh, Northern Ireland has a referendum and there is a majority for merging with Ireland, we are not going to have a war. We're not going to uh, have uh, the British army bombing Edinburgh or uh, Belfast. Yes, this is indeed a a very clear example of the differences between authoritarian regimes and democracies. Let let us now come back to, to the contemporary Russia and what's going on in the information field, in the in, in, in the information warfare. So how do you think the ideas of Russian imperialism are present in the Russian information warfare and disinformation nowadays? What are the most widespread Russian disinformation narratives with regard to Ukraine, Russian empire, this war you can track? Uh, I've been following uh, this issue closely and I've been struck by 
uh, the avert and unashamed use of uh, and glorification of Russian imperialism in the current narratives justifying the war against Ukraine. And I think the difference uh, with the coverage of the annexation of Crimea in 2014 is quite striking uh, because, uh, again, there is quite a lot of uh, literature discussion of how actually opportunistic current Russian propaganda is and how narratives shifts all the time depending on the kind of immediate needs um, uh, of the regime and even specific propaganda people. But roughly we can say that the dominant uh, narrative in relation to the Crimea in 2014 was that this is a national reunification compared to the uh, unification of Germany's uh, in 1991. Uh, and there was quite a systematic denial or rebuttals of the accusations of uh, Russian neo-imperialism. Uh, currently, uh, the idea that what... We are now seeing is a manifestation of Russian imperialism, is completely embraced by uh, the Kremlin's propaganda machine. Um, one of the kind of most prominent uh, propaganda people on uh, Russian state television, uh, Vladimir Solovyov, said in one of his recent programs that he would have loved to live in the 19th century because Poland, Finland, and Alaska were ours. You have constant quoting of uh, Russian imperial politicians and uh, generals of the Russian imperial army celebrating Russian imperial conquest. Putin uh, makes his speeches, for instance, the speech uh, on the 8th of March um, uh, this year against a golden statue of Catherine the Great. Uh, so to me, the question was why, uh, given that, again, Putin himself had been telling uh the Russian audience since 2013, that Russians and Ukrainians were the same people. So why do you need this imperial rhetoric if you could still use this national unification uh, claim in relation basically to the whole Ukraine? And to me, again, it's a pure speculation, but to me that sort of suggests that uh, the plans of uh, Putin's government now was not to stop uh, at Ukraine, but to also move uh, towards Moldova, Georgia, and maybe uh, further afield. Um, now, in terms of uh, which uh, kind of imperialist narratives are particularly striking, to me, uh, 
these are uh, two. Uh, one is um, that uh, there is a constant repetition uh, of a statement by one of the Russian generals uh, made in 1850s uh, uh, along the lines that uh, wherever the Russian imperial flag has ever been raised once should remain the Russian territory forever. The idea that <laughs> uh, this kind of uh, imperial rhetoric, which wouldn't have raised eyebrows, anyone's eyebrows in the mid-19th century, can uh, be used as a justification of policy uh, in the 21st century seems to me remarkable. But another... Um, a narrative, uh, in a way, um, a particularly dangerous one, in the context of uh, basically presenting current policies as imperial, uh, is the narrative about de-Ukrainization uh, as a goal of uh, the war, what Putin calls special uh, operation. And if uh, we are talking about imperial conquest, uh, de-Ukrainization uh, acquires basically uh, genocidal meaning. Um, and that it becomes, uh, to me, the, a, a particularly uh, kind of striking and dangerous uh, element. Uh, of the current propaganda. Yeah, absolutely agree. And my point always is that the the aim of the Russian propaganda is not to disinform, but but to dehumanize. And this dehumanization is a very important nerve of this propaganda. It's not only addressing against Ukrainians, but also addressing against Europeans, against the British, against the Americans, against the French, against the Germans, etc. And this de-Ukrainization, of course, when I try to explain Russian propaganda to Italians uh, or to French or to Germans, I'm saying, okay, imagine there is a country uh, near you which tries to de-Italianize Italy or de-Germanize the Germany. That that's what we are experiencing right now. Let me let me now ask maybe the final question. You're also studying a lot, not only political issues but also. Uh, the broader context, the cultural context. Do you think uh, there is a, a big debate about Russian culture right now? What should be the approach to the Russian culture, uh, to the Russian history, to the Russian literature? Do you think we should approach it with with a similar way uh, in which the Western culture approached itself in the past decades, meaning that uh, we should have a very critical stance towards the, the classics like Pushkin, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Solovyov, that Solovyov philosopher, uh, and all the others, meaning that there is a lot of this imperialism in their works. We should really criti critically address it. We should analyze it. We should look what arguments, what metaphors, what emotions they use. Do you think it is very needed right now to have this critical approach? Uh, yes, uh, absolutely. So uh, as uh, Russian culture since the time of Peter the Great has been developing within uh, pan-European frameworks, and that was uh, um, 
main frame of reference uh, at Europe itself and other, uh, of course, in the Russian context. And uh, European modern European culture uh, has been uh, imperial culture. Uh, like Russian uh, culture, uh, British and French cultures was also uh, very much embashed in their country's uh, imperial and colonial uh, pursuits. Um, so how do we deal uh, with this uh, legacy and the uh, uh, tradition? Um, and... Uh, we cannot just altogether uh, reject uh, European uh, and including Russian cultural traditions because they have ideas with which we uh, no longer agree. So there is a discussion whether one should, uh, let's say, quote uh, Martin Heidegger because he was a supporter of uh, Hitler. Uh, should we listen to Wagner, because he, he was, uh, given that he was anti-Semitic? Do we read Kipling, because um, uh, of his position on empire, Dickens, because, and Shakespeare, because of anti-Semitism? So we, we need the same approach to Dostoevsky, Pushkin, Lermontov, and uh, let's say Vladimir Solovyov, uh, and uh, um, uh, so on. And again, here we see a very significant difference between the approaches in uh, Western uh, uh, Europe and in the United States uh, in relation to the legacy of racism, uh, for example, and in contemporary Russia. Because in contemporary Russia, we had individual academics, uh, and uh, individual cultural figures, few few writers who attempted to uh, critically look at Russian imperial legacy. But at the level of uh, the kind of official political and media discourses uh, and even the top kind of state-affiliated cultural uh, establishment, there is a complete rejection uh, of the very possibility to critically assess uh, this legacy. And to the contrary, what we see that some of the most obnoxious ideas from that legacy are used to justify, used very selectively to justify uh, aggressive policies. Um, and to be a very interesting example is the use in Putin's Russia of Dostoevsky, which, who is the most quoted uh, Russian writer of the 19th century in today's Russia. And Dostoevsky is a complex, very complex writer who on the one hand uh, addressed uh, in a very powerful way, issues of universal significance, but on the other hand, uh, had anti-Semitic and uh, overall xenophobic ideas, uh, which are um, kind of reprehensible to us uh, today. And uh, also... Uh, had a very strong sort of views around... Uh, 
basically Russian uh, messianic role uh, in the world. Uh, so it's a very, very polyphonic uh, and multidimensional uh, sort of tradition that Dostoevsky left for us. But in Putin's uh, kind of official discourse, uh, we have just two works by Dostoevsky which are used, and the works which he produced at the very end uh, of uh, his life, particularly conservative, Pushkin's speech, uh, which... uh, in a way, can be used uh, to justify uh, uh, Russian imperialism. And uh, the diary of the writer, uh, from which specific quotes are used uh, to buttress current anti-Western narratives. But uh, even the Pushkin speech is kind of a multidimensional piece of work. But uh, the diary uh, of the writer also includes extremely critical uh, passages uh, about ordinary Russian people. Uh, and But this is not uh, accounted for. And uh, again, to me, the uh, Russian official uh, kind of inability to uh, critically assess uh, the imperial legacy uh, including in uh, Russian culture, and instead use this uh, elements of cultural tradition selectively to butter, to, to kind of justify current aggression, is part of uh, this larger problem. But it does not mean that we have to reject uh, the whole Russian culture, as we do not have to reject British or French. Uh, culture, uh, or indeed Germany in their entirety, because uh, uh, there are elements of this culture uh, which um, we uh, strongly reject today. And again, if I may give you an example of the kind of difference uh, in terms of uh, dealing with this uh, question of the empirical legacy in a democratic state, and in uh, under the dictatorship, uh, in the context of uh, Brexit uh, and uh, the kind of uh, populist policies, I would say, of the current British government, uh, post-Brexit uh, British government, one uh, actually particularly obnoxious. Uh, um, member of uh, the British cabinet at the moment who wouldn't have been out of place, I would say, in uh, in Russia today, Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, wrote a book uh, uh, about uh, the Victorian era, uh, celebrate, basically celebrating uh, racist and imperialist legacies uh, of uh, late 19th century, early 20th century Britain. Uh, But this book is not used as uh, a kind of justification uh, for policies. It it was a commercial flop, and uh, it overwhelmingly got uh, negative and mocking reviews. So again, we see uh, a very different here basically in one example, a very different approaches to kind of very similar problems. 
Exactly, and I think uh, this is what has to be dramatically changed. The approach to the Russian culture has to be dramatically, dramatically, radically changed, so that uh, the uh, re-emergence of these imperialist narratives could uh, provoke the same mocking reviews in Russia itself. And why, by addressing the Russian classics, we should uh, use the same critical and sometimes very radically critical instruments as uh, we use in addressing Flaubert, Kipling, Wagner, uh, etc. Thank you so much for this conversation, Vera. Unfortunately, we have to stop here. Uh, and this was a fantastic, a fascinating conversation. We had Vera Tolz, who is a professor at the University of Manchester. Uh, we try to explain you a little bit what what what's Russian imperialism is about, how it uh, converges with Russian nationalism, and how it is all present in the current discourse. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for inviting me to talk to you. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor at ukraineworld.org. Let me remind you that you can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest and biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. Subscribe to Ukraine World on social networks, Twitter, Facebook and YouTube. Follow our podcast on SoundCloud, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast and YouTube. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.